Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice It, where you get a front row seat into the lives of people in the Mid-North who run their own successful small businesses. It's pretty much a sticky beak into the lives of these people to give you more of an understanding as to how they got where they are today. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. Well, today you're going to meet Deb Scammell, and most of you would more likely already know her or if not heard of her. Deb runs a business called Talking Livestock, specialising in animal nutrition. So she talks for a living. But her knowledge and expertise on the subject is exceptional. So much so she's considered one of the state's most highly regarded and sought after livestock nutrition consultants. Deb grew up in Blythe, went to uni in Adelaide, and has worked in numerous roles in agriculture across South Australia and Queensland, to now running her own consultancy in a sector that was pretty much non-existent 20 years ago. Over the next 40 minutes, you'll hear about Deb's life so far. Her love for horses, she reminisces about her uni days, which goes hand in hand with the Thursday nights at the Maiden Magpie, and how she met her long-haired beau, Joe. But Deb also reveals the heartache of losing her father too early to brain cancer. And then not long after, a near-death experience where she terrifyingly rolled the car with her three-month-old in the back seat. This story will just take your breath away. I laughed and cried through this interview, and I'm pretty sure you will too. Enjoy the journey with Deb Scammell. I was actually born on the West Coast at Woodna, but we um, moved pretty quickly from there and settled in the Mid-North. So Dad basically had a job transfer and had to find a house somewhere around the Mid-North of South Australia. So, um, yeah, I think I would have been about two. We ended up in Blythe um, with him sort of working around the Mid-North region. So what was he doing? Uh, So he was a similar career path to me in a way, like he was an animal health rep for Bayer at that time. He'd been with elders on the West Coast um, straight out of Adelaide as a kid and then, yeah, went to Woodner and stayed on the West Coast for a fair bit, then got a job with Bayer where he had to be based around the Mid-North. So how old were you when you moved to Blythe? Two, I think, yeah, quite young. And my sister's 18 months older, so it was just the two of us and then my brother was born. He's three and a half years younger than me. So, yeah, we had a pretty crazy childhood in the little town of Blythe. Yep. So can you tell me what type of things you got up to in Blythe? Oh, I feel like it was just a very um, safe town where I just remember knowing everyone that lived in every house and if we had to collect money or sell raffle tickets or whatever, we'd literally just knock on every door and know everyone everywhere. So uh, I just remember riding our bikes. We lived right near the primary school at the back of the town um, and most of our pets used to get out through the day and just run down to the school. So I remember a lot of lunch times, just bring the dog, galah, goats, any animal we had back home. Um, so yeah, mum, an animal lover, and I sort of followed suit. Um, and we had a lot of animals around, which I still do now. And then dad had ridden heavily as a kid, like horse road, and was very competitive, but it had a bad fall and wasn't allowed to ride again. So it was when he would have been in his 40s, I guess. He decided he was going to start riding again and joined Clare Hunt Club. And then, yeah, I sort of had a passion for horses after that. Ah, so, so that was through your dad. Yeah. I so, did wonder about that. Yeah. So we had a house on a half acre block with, yeah, way too many animals on it. Um, a joey at one stage that we'd found at a friend's house and ended up giving it away when it turned into a big red taller than me. 
And, yeah, then we ended up leasing some land out the back and we had, I think, five horses at one point in stables and yards. And, yeah, I've been a competitive horse rider sort of ever since. So how old were you when you started riding a horse? I think I was probably around 10, um, but I reckon that was around when Dad got his horse. So I remember sort of riding on it and sitting in front of the saddle with him riding and then we eventually got a Shetland and ponies and a couple more and um, mum taught herself to ride as well about then. So yeah, mum, me and dad basically just rode from then on. So Stephen and Catherine didn't ride? Uh, They both started but then they gave up pretty quickly, yeah, and then they hated being dragged to horse events after that basically, yeah. So would you say that your younger years were dominated by horse events? Yeah, I guess there's key things you remember from your childhood. Like I remember when I was about 12 – playing junior netball and dad said you can't keep pulling out of your team to go to a horse show like you need to make a decision whether you're going to ride or play netball so I said netball's gone and there was too many kids in Blythe randomly for the tennis team so I remember hitting on a hitting wall and then we never actually got to play a game of tennis ever for the club so yeah I think I just straight away yeah went into horse riding yeah I clearly remember getting up before school riding a pony and then riding one after school like every day of the week basically. You've got three young boys are they interested in riding? No so um, they're very into motorbikes so they will jump on occasionally and I had a pony for a short amount of time they keep asking for a pony but um, I think they'll get on probably twice a year and I'd end up looking after it the whole year so it's been one of those things I've got a horse quite enough they can jump on if they need to but um jock's actually making his showing debut at the clare show so (laughs) he hasn't really ridden before but he's going to be riding a shetland in the first lead class so yeah does that make you proud uh yeah i'm not sure i'm still thinking he might chicken out because tom and henry laughed so much when he put his jodpers on i feel (laughs) like he may not put them on again (laughs) i'm not fast i feel like as long as i can have animals around they make me happy and um, motorbikes are a hell of a lot easier to lock in the shed and go away on holidays without having to get anyone to look after them. Have you ever had a bad um, a bad fall off a horse? Um, yeah, I had one memorable one that was quite early in Joe's and my dating career. So Joe's not into horses at all and he'd come out to watch and I did a very spectacular fall right in front of the MC box on a cross-country course. So yeah, basically horse fell coming into a jumping up bank, hit it with its knees and then I started to fall off and then the horse got up and jumped off the other side of the bank. So I sort of did a catapult into the ground <gasps> off a very high bank right in front of the spectators, people on the microphone and Joe had rocked up late and just looked up on the course and went, oh, that's a terrible fall. Uh, and then my horse sort of ran past him and I can't even believe he recognised it but he figured out that it was my horse and that was probably me. What damage did you do? Well, nothing major. I've been extremely lucky. Like I had severe neck pain, like, you know, whiplash pretty much. They said like I'd been in a pretty huge car accident, but um, yeah, it all healed over time. But yeah, I think that sort of thing definitely dents your confidence as far as going out there, jumping big solid things again, really. Well, how quickly did, did it take or how long did it take for you to get back on that horse? After well, that? I got straight back on, but I feel like that was potentially a bit of a turning point for me that I lost confidence in high level competition. Yeah. Going back to schooling days and you were at Blythe Primary. Yeah. And then you went to Clare High? Yeah, I did. Yep. Yeah. So what was your high school years like? Um, so I was incredibly shy through my whole life, which is interesting really? now. Yeah. So no. especially when I run a business based on talking. But 
yeah, mum said we were just really shy kids. Me and my sister would just hide behind her legs, never talk to anyone. She'd just drag us around social things and we wouldn't even come out from behind her legs. No. And I feel like I was very shy through high school. Um, and I guess Claire High is a tricky, like you sort of go up from Blythe with a couple of people that aren't necessarily that similar to you and get thrown into a pretty random bunch of people. So I ended up with a couple of really close friends. Um, but, you know, we had 80 people starting year eight and I think maybe 12 finish year 12 at Clare High. And there wasn't much of a focus on further learning or people that were actually there to learn. So, yeah, I was very studious, which I think was lucky because I sort of was focused on going to uni and ended up doing two subjects by open access because I wanted to do maths too and Mm -hmm. physics and some of the harder subjects to get into a science-based course. So, yeah, I, I think I was driven, but I think I was also lucky that I found learning quite easy and I clearly remember having all afternoon off going home riding my horse because I was doing open access and then doing probably an hour's study at night to make up for it and, you know, I got through year 12 pretty well, luckily. You wanted to go to uni. Did you know at that stage at high school what you wanted to do? No, I don't remember having any idea. Like, I knew I wanted to do something with animals and the only – I did work experience at the vet and I I remember clearly wanting to be a vet. I don't 100% remember how I – got into ag science I think I think I would have put vet as my top one didn't get the marks um ag science would have been somewhere there in the mix and as I said there's only snippets of information you remember I think from when you're little but I remember one of the things I said to dad was I'm doing ag science I really want to do something with animals and he said you have to do agronomy there's no career in animals within agriculture yeah in the meantime so dad was a Bayer animal health rep and then he started a um, reseller business in Clare, which is now Landmark. So he started. He started um, Landmark. Yeah, so it was Vivco back in the day. So that would have been, yeah, pretty soon. I reckon after we moved, I'm trying to think when it was. Because um, your maiden name maybe is in the nineties. Col- yeah, your Collins. Ma- your maiden yeah. name is Collins. Yeah, yeah so it was yeah. Tony Collins. So he started that business with a guy that was working at Elders. So he was in the agricultural space, and he was employing agronomists straight out of Roseworthy. And he just said, there's absolutely no jobs for animals. You cannot do animals. Why, why wasn't there any jobs for animals? Uh, because there actually wasn't, yeah. <laughs> Other than like an animal health rep job or something like that, there would have been a few of those, a stock agent, but there was no one or it was a pretty limited space in what I'm in now. So it's been, you know, as you know, being off of, you know, far, tied up to a farm, sheep prices, cattle prices have gone through the roof. Um, you know performance has gone through the roof like people are looking for a lot more help and there's a massive industry on that side now but there wasn't back then this so is during the yeah 80s? I guess well, 90, no, well I finished the school in 98 so um, it would have been during the 90s so mm-hmm. the good thing about ag science was that you didn't really need to know where you're going to end up so I sort of it starts a really science-based um, course and then you head into either agronomy or animals and I just started to go into animals and I enjoyed it and I ended up doing honours in a sheep project out at Roseworthy and ended up staying on there doing sheep research at the uni and literally this whole industry has evolved in front of me. Did you start off at Roseworthy or did you start off no, at No, I started at Waite. Started oh, at Waite. Actually, sorry, we started at Adelaide Uni in the city for the first year and then we had one day a week at Roseworthy which we all used to catch a bus out from North Terrace and then I ended up at White in second year and third year was half White, half Roseworthy and fourth year I ended up moving to Roseworthy. So country girl like yourself, 
moving from the from Blythe to Claire and then to the big smoke of Adelaide. How yeah. did you deal with that? Yeah, so I was really young. Like I moved, um, I would have been 17 and um, mum made us live with her sister in Adelaide. Um, my sister was already down there, so that probably helped. She was a year above me. Um, so we're pretty close in age and she was already at McGill Uni. So I kind of moved in with her at my auntie's house and then we ended up house hunting and mum and dad bought a little unit and then we moved into that on our own. So, yeah, I think I loved it. I had good mates at Roseworthy. Um, yeah, it was a pretty fun time to be in Adelaide, I feel like. So do you think you had cracked open that shell of not being that shy girl and was probably a little bit more outgoing? By the no, time I think finished? I was still very shy. It's funny, actually, really? one of my really good mates now in first year uni said I basically wouldn't talk to anyone. I, I sort of had a group of friends, but they were in a science, environmental science course. So then when I went into weight, they didn't come with me. So I still remember being like, I don't know anyone that's doing ag science because there was no real division between the courses at that point. Definitely by fourth year, I wasn't shy at all. Yeah, I think I probably just found my people a bit in ag science. Like we've got a brilliant group of friends still and it was literally the era of the Maiden Magpie where you'd go to the pub on a Thursday night and there'd be like, I don't even know how many people, 300 people in there, but you knew nearly everyone. Like you had connections with everyone, all country people from all over the state. And So when you finished your honours, were there more jobs out there for, you know, in the animal sphere? There was a few, but it's um like I think it was all probably the traditional things that are still out there a bit now, like Persa. But I remember applying for a few things, but my honours supervisor actually offered me a job straight away. Um, so they were looking for the alternative to musing, which they still are. So I did a two-year project on chemical musing and it was just me and another girl in a lab at Roseworthy. So I just stayed at Roseworthy basically. So I stayed in the same house that I was living in in Adelaide, had a horse halfway between Adelaide and Roseworthy and worked at Roseworthy. So when did you meet Joe, your husband? So it would have been – well, I actually did meet him at uni. So he was – he's the same age as me, but he'd taken two years off ag science. So he ended up finishing it two years after me. I can actually sort of remember when we met, but I was <laughs> – I had a long-term boyfriend sort of through the end of high school into uni. So he sort of asked a friend of mine who I was and she was like, nah, she's got a guy, like blah, blah, blah. So then she pointed out who he was and I was like, oh, yeah, now I know who that guy is. And we'd just sort of say hi, but we didn't actually know each other. Do you remember where that was? Um, the Maiden Magpie, was it? <laughs> no, so this was in a computer room at Wait, but um, Joe looked a lot different to what he does now. So he had long hair, looked like he hadn't showered for a fair while, like baggy trackies. We're dro- talking about Joe Scammell, let's yeah. be clear. Yeah. <laughs> Drove a car that was like from here, like really small. And I just remember all my mates at uni used to pick his car up at Wait, like four of them, and put it between two gum trees so he couldn't get it out at the end of uni. <laughs> But, yeah, so it was after – so then we knew who each other was. We were at the pub probably together every Thursday night. But um, um, it was two years after when I was working at Roseworthy that I unfortunately had to lecture a couple of their prac classes. So because I was doing this project at the uni, my supervisor said – or boss then it was – he's like, can you teach these guys um, – what you did in your honours project, which I was like, no way, don't ask me, like I can't. And I knew half of them socially. And so I still clearly remember John, a selection of his mates sitting on the back of a 
at a set of sheep yards just laughing their heads off and me and this other girl basically I had to do worm egg counts but now I just pick them up off the ground but involve like rubber gloves and removing manure from a sheep so that's how we got together (laughs) (laughs) so after that prat class he basically walked up to the front office of my office with his backpack on and was like could you call Deb down and then I went down there and he's like do you want to go out with me? I was like, that's so awkward. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where it started. Yeah. So you got him at Parasite? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. It's quite awkward. You obviously dated for a while. Yeah. you went on some pretty good adventures together. Yeah. Yep. So Joe's parents had a property far north at that point. So he, oh, he must have taken a year off uni. After that, I reckon. Um, but yeah, I ended up taking a job in Adelaide with Primary Industries, doing extension type stuff for probably three years, um, and where I sort of travelled around the state and I guess started to get into talking and NLIS, like Electronic ID, when they first brought the program in for cattle. So I took on the extension officer for that with a team of a couple of other guys. Yeah. That's pretty major. Yeah. And I was pretty young, like I was, I don't know, 22, 23. But yeah, I still remember me and my really a good friend from uni went for two jobs at Persa or there would have been others. We both got offered one and we had to choose which job. And it's when you're young and you don't even know what job means what, basically. But one was at Murray Bridge and one was in Adelaide. So I just chose the Adelaide one and she got the Murray Bridge one. And then um, it just meant I was on the road and doing extension, which was the best thing probably to set up my career, I think. Did you enjoy that type of work though? I mean, um, So I didn't – I I loved the role because I was out with farmers and I did a lot of talks but it was a really tough gig as far as a new system that the government had enforced. Like I was doing talks and people just yelling at me and asking who was going to pay for it and I just remember being, you know, probably 23 and going, oh, this is pretty scary and I feel like that's where I get the thick skin mm. I have now with talking because – People always say to me, oh, how do you handle hard – and I was like, nothing could be as bad as that. what that was. Like people would just be screaming at you from the back and you're just standing on this stage like this little 23-year-old that's a little bit cry? timid. No, I don't think I ever did. And I don't know where I got the thickness from but I didn't – yeah, it didn't affect <laughs> me like it should have. I was with a team of people that had worked for the government for 30 years and weren't that motivated to leave their office. So I just ran with what I needed to do and just did it. And It wasn't yeah, it was comments good. that were personally targeted at you, like, you don't know what you're talking about. It was no, more it about was the at program. The, yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. easier to take. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it still gives you a thick skin as far as talking. So yeah. I did that for three years, but I probably just struggled with the government politics, like the, um, I guess, the top-heavy workforce of people that had sat there forever that – didn't do a lot for their pay packets. So um, I sort of, it was a brilliant stepping stone for me, but I knew I had to get out of there as well. So after the three years doing that, where did you then leave yeah, so, to? Yeah, so Joey must have headed north then because his parents were going to sell the property. So they had Mount Lindhurst and decided they were going to sell it because it basically couldn't support all of them and him and his brother had been up there at varying times. And so Joe and I just decided we are going to go somewhere different. So... I just started applying for jobs interstate and ended up getting one in Toowoomba. So I still remember moving up there three months before him and I couldn't take any animals with me. I didn't have the dogs, horses, nothing. And actually, no, sorry, I did take my horse. I didn't have the dogs and just sat in this really average unit in a 
really bad part of town. So you weren't enjoying it then. <laughs> it was okay, but it was a, just a massive life change. Like just not knowing anyone and just walking around town on your own all weekend was pretty weird. Yeah. What was the job that you were doing in Toowoomba? Uh, so I worked up there for Catapult Genetics, um, which is basically a DNA company. So they did a lot of genomic work with beef. But randomly I moved to Queensland and then they gave me a sheep DNA position. So I spent my whole time flying south. Yeah, so I was just based in Toowoomba. Oh, right. Yeah, so the company was based in Brizzy. Oh, okay. Yeah, so which is why they advertised it up there. In the end, I could have been based anywhere because I spent my whole time in WA, New South Wales, Victoria and SA. Yeah, so at least I got flights home. Essentially, what did you have to do? So I was just selling DNA programs mm-hmm. to sheep producers, so mostly stud guys. DNA parentage mostly was the focus back then. So DNA has gone a long way since then to trait-based stuff, but it was just mostly DNA parentage. So I had really good stud clients. So we'd basically just take a DNA sample of all the rams, all the ewes, and just match their progeny up every year for stud recording. So you've done some quite diverse roles in yeah. your career, which is awesome because yeah. it gives you this wealth of knowledge yeah. and background. You compare what you did then and what you're doing now. Yeah. People sort of ask me like, you know, kids come and do work experience or whatever and they're like, how do we get in? And I might just take a job. Like it doesn't matter in ag what you take. Like I feel like everything gives you a stepping stone to something else. And I don't ever remember being fussy. I just think, oh, that's good. I'm, And I think for me it was always being out in the field with farmers and having that personal relationship. So whether I'm doing EID and helping with the computer stuff or DNA, it, all of it was developing relationships with the same people that I kept going back to. So that's all that was important to me. And I think it's really given me – it's made me end up where I am now, I guess. But I wouldn't have left uni and said, I'm going to be a consultant. How do I get there? I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do at the end. So how many years did you spend in Toowoomba? Oh, I think it would have been about three and a half years. So – we had a great time there. So Joe moved up into this unit after they'd sold the station and was like, oh, my God, where are we living? Like we lived across from this pub, but it was the most horrible pub. Like no one went there. It was terrible. And we lived just off a major highway. And we both – we had two dogs that we both loved. We couldn't move them up. We had to leave them back into SA till we had a house. So um, we met some good mates that had moved from SA too and just hit it off with them straight away. It was actually the night we met them. We had a massive night at the pub, ended up getting home like probably 3am and then there was a house auction the next day and I love this house and I basically said to Joe, we've got to go to the auction. Joe's like, no, I can't. I'm getting my hair cut. I'm not going. And I was like, we're going to the auction. We're so hungover. Did he still and have long hair at this point? No, no. <laughs> and so we bought this house like... With, I think we put went up to the agent and said, can we put $100? We just got 100 bucks out of the ATM. Is that enough for a deposit? <laughs> and they didn't have much interest, obviously, because she was like, oh, just check with the vendor. Yeah, that'll be fine. And then my brother works in real estate. So I had him – I was trying to get him on the phone to help him work out what we should do at this auction. Then I accidentally put him on loudspeaker – when it was like pure silence and he just started talking and I'm like, everyone just started laughing. Like we clearly <laughs> looked hug over. Anyway, we bought this house in about eight minutes and then <gasps> I just remember sitting at the bakery going, oh, wow, that was good. So, yeah, we moved in. It was the most beautiful house. Um, yeah, got our dogs up, set our life up there, I guess, for a little while and it was fun. Okay, why why did you leave Toowoomba in the end and why did you come back to SA? Is that Was that the next step? So, yeah, I must just have all these defining moments because I feel like everything you asked me, there's a defining moment and it was 
basically we're in some best mates wedding. So we got married in Clare, but we were still living in Toowoomba. So we actually got married at Bungaree the December before we moved back and we had no plans at all to move back. Um, We just came back here to get married because it was home for us and all our friends were here. And then in March that year after our wedding, Joey was best man and I was um, maid of honour, matron of honour, whatever it is in – so both of our besties basically – who live on a farm out of Narracourt now. And I still remember the recovery sitting on her parents' lawn. Everyone was drinking, having a great time, and we had a flight that night. And I just started, like, on Webjet trying to change our flights. Like, we were probably half booze. And I was like, we're not going back. Like, everyone's having such a good time. These are our friends. I don't want to go back to Queensland. And we couldn't change our flight. And we ended up getting in a cab and going to the airport and flying home. But... That was the moment we were like, we have to move back. All our friends are back there. Like, we had an amazing group of mates in Toowoomba. We had a great time, but it was never going to be forever. So, when when did Joe propose? Um, yeah, it must have been March 08. And how did he propose? Um, so, it was pretty low-key. I think he was really nervous. We'd been away for the weekend, and I guess all our mates were sort of starting to get married back in SA, and then... Um, we're actually on our way home at a uh, chocolate factory place just out of Toowoomba <laughs> and then he kind of just asked me there but yeah it was pretty low-key I think I sort of made him get on his knee because I was like you at least have to get on your knee like it's a bit awkward <laughs> just over a hot chocolate or something you came back to Claire you came back to do what so I actually ended up with a transfer. So I guess when we decided we wanted to move back, because I spent my whole time flying south, I just said to them, so Catapult Genetics got um, bought out by Pfizer, which is now Zoetis. So they actually took over and the business had got a bit average. So I had a brilliant boss in New Zealand when I was at Catapult, who we just got on like a house on fire, ran my own show, it was great. Um, and then I ended up under a bit of a average sort of, Australian team with Pfizer so I guess I knew that my time there was limited anyway but they happily let me relocate to SA and I think even paid for relocation fees and stuff so we relocated and it was just a matter of time it was just Joe trying to find a new job basically which he just got a job. So what did he do in Toowoomba? So he was um, working for a silage company just making silage Okay. yeah or um, selling inoculants and helping with silage contracting basically. I hear that it was probably a really good it was probably a really good move to move back to South Australia because you're closer to your friends but you're also close to your family. Yeah, so I guess you just miss out on so many things when you move away and I guess for us we wanted to be away um, but then there's also – you want to do your own thing but then there's that point you just want to be around people. So we actually moved back to – Joe's mum had a house in on Beulah Road in Norwood that was pretty run down had been rented for quite a while but we moved into that just till we worked out where we wanted to go and my grandpa actually lived four or five – houses down and I was incredibly close to him and he was sort of having a bit of ill health so yeah he passed away probably six months after we got back maybe a little bit more but yeah for me it was so good just being able to walk down the road and catch up with him and you know just be around people a little bit closer than what you can especially people like that that you probably don't always talk on the phone for hours. So you had that those last few months to be with him? Yeah yeah. Were you close to him as you grew up? Was he up here? Was he No, up in so Claire? I think when I moved to uni, ah, um, okay. he was in Adelaide and me and my cousin Beck, who you know, we used to ride our bikes down there like once a week and cook him dinner. We just had a really good relationship with him. 
But yeah, I feel like those years when you're away from your actual family, I had a lot of amazing people that I feel like were like father figures to me and he was one of them. And talking about father figures or talking about your father, I heard he got quite unwell later on. Yeah, so um, dad um, had a brain tumour, yeah, which was a fairly fast decline, I guess. So um, yeah, he passed away in 2012, but it was probably um, 18 months to two years before that he was diagnosed and he'd been given uh, seven to 15 years to live. And I remember him being really upset because he was, he would have been about 65 then. So he was like seven years, I'm only going to be 72. And so oh, he'd retired. So he'd done really well in business. So he'd sold out of, to Landmark, like Vivco to Landmark and then started a sheep dipping business and he was sort of semi-retired and then he retired fully when he was probably 56. So he'd had a lot of years of retirement but he'd done a lot of volunteering and not really just holidaying and enjoying himself. Mm. So mum and him sort of, they went on a cruise to New Zealand and he had sort of a stroke and they had to get off the boat and that's when they realised the brain tumour was growing really quickly. Oh, so that, that was the first sign that he was unwell? No, so it? he'd been diagnosed with this very slow-growing brain tumour that they he'd had a bit of treatment, but they just said, you know, you've got seven to 15 years, it's not going to affect your life for a long time and, you know, go home and live your life, I guess. But so it was very, it was probably within a year or six months even that it suddenly turned into a very fast-growing brain tumour that, yeah, was not able to be operated on or, yeah. So what was the first sign that something wasn't right? Oh, I can't actually remember early on. I, I remember one of his mates had a, had a brain tumour, another man in Clare, and he'd lost a bit of feeling in his face. And I feel like Dad just had something quite small, but because this had happened, he'd asked for a brain scan and they'd found it. But also, you know, as I said earlier, Dad wasn't able to ride again. He'd had a head injury in his 20s. Um, he dealt with a lot of sort of chemicals for his life and... When you look at the risk factors for brain tumour, I sort of feel like he had a lot of them. Yeah, so it was just a very tough time at the end because I was pregnant with our first child at that point. Sorry, I can't say all this without crying. Yeah, he, like, I just remember being pregnant, going to that first appointment with him and they said he had three months to live. So, yeah, it was a pretty tough year. Yeah, so he declined incredibly quickly and... Yeah, passed away probably three and a half months after that appointment. How was your mum? Uh, mum's a pretty strong person and she'd cared for him the whole way through and, yeah, incredibly tough time. Like I was still working. I remember just working at her house so um, she could go out and just do food shopping and stuff and Dad had just asked the same questions over and over again. But we were incredibly lucky because... Dad was ready to go, which is hard to understand, but he was um, he was in the most amazing headspace and he went he stayed at home until the Friday before he died, maybe the Monday morning. Yeah, so he was only in Clare Hospital for three days and mum had been able to care for him till then, which was obviously really tough on her, but I think the mental space he was in made it a lot easier for us. Mm. Because there was never like, why me? It was like, I've had a great life. I've got a great family. I've, I'm ready to go. Oh. But yeah, I had Tom eight weeks later, I think. So yeah, it was a pretty tough time for all of us. But it's only, yeah, small things. Like I just remember shopping for a maternity dress to wear to your dad's funeral and 
we all said the my my sister and brother said the eulogy and yeah like I don't know I just always think back to just standing up there being seven months pregnant the funny thing is dad thought I'd never have kids because he just thought I was going to ride horses forever so I just always wish he'd met so we found out what sex we're having because I wanted to tell dad before he died and I, he sort of would remember sometimes and other times he wouldn't even remember I was pregnant so it'd just be nice now if he could have met all my kids Yeah, so I guess 2012 was a crazy year for me, but also probably life-defining, I think, in some ways, um, with Dad passing away. And then obviously the pure joy of having your first child and that pregnancy sort of rush. But, um, yeah, then Tom was three months old and I was trekking down to Robe, um, first road trip on my own with a baby to catch up with my best friend from Narracourt who'd had twins the same age. And, yeah, I basically just got out of Meningi and a car just careered across the line and hit a caravan that was I was following a caravan and just went over the double line smashed straight to this caravan and just spun and just came head on at me basically in a 110 zone and yeah I don't know you just see the life your life flashing before your eyes basically so So what happened yeah so we both tried to swerve but we sort of hit front right hand side to right hand side and I think I was lucky that my car sort of span and he he knocked the rear axle off my car but by some miracle where Tom and me were was not damaged but yeah we spun and rolled so many times and I basically ended up on on the roof of the car on a 40 degree day in the middle of the Meningi highway and yeah it was horrifying I couldn't get out I had my my hand was stuck under the side of the car and yeah, so I couldn't get out of the car and then my car sort of tipped off my hand and I ripped it out and, yeah, I jumped out of the car and I couldn't get Tom out. So, um, yeah, oh. the car was upside down basically. So I at this point some guys had pulled up and I, they knew I had a kid in there. I was just screaming and jumped back through the window and crawled across a heap of glass and just I just remember pushing the – button he was hanging from the roof and just pushing that red thing and just dragging him out of the car because I could just smell fuel and smoke and you just have that feeling that your car is just going to go up but yeah so I ripped him out and um, by some miracle we were okay so he was absolutely fine in a screaming was he did he He was silent which was worse yeah so he was hanging from the roof in the back seat and I'd had an argument with my friend's husband that I was going down to see about why I would put a capsule in the middle of the car. And I was always paranoid about a car accident. So I made sure the capsule was in the middle of the car. And, it, yeah, it's strange. But he was in the safest place. He was in a capsule in the middle of the back seat. I think I was more at risk because where the guy hit, I don't know how the driver's seat was still there. The Ambo came and they said they'd never seen a accident like that where we're all just standing next to our cars like but yeah I just had burn to my hand and a shoulder injury that's been operated on since but how I didn't lose my hand I have no idea because how, it's how's your hand now yeah well it's scarred you wouldn't even notice but oh. it scraped down the bitumen road and it ended up under the car so yeah I just had burns treatments on it for three or four months and is amazing yeah <laughs> But, yeah, I guess for me that year was um, when you say about how I live life now, I feel like is that full realisation that your life's short, really? Like that was 
everything flashing before my eyes and you know first baby in the back and and you know the earlier incident of dad passing away in June that year so yeah it felt like a pretty big change in your mindset I think around then. Imagine making that phone call to Joe. Yeah well I actually couldn't remember Joe's number and I had no phone like I had nothing so I stood on the side of the road with a guy and I the only phone number I could remember was mum's and she was somewhere in Adelaide so she started just driving for Meningi Hospital basically and then she called Joe yeah. Oh my god considering yeah. all of you had just gone through you know with your dad and yeah. you having a car accident. Yeah. And you know with your baby in the back. Yeah. Oh yeah I think mum left Flinders Hospital that night and was driving back to the Adelaide house and a cop pulled her over because her car wasn't registered and it was still in dad's name. And because I hadn't sent the papers. And I think mum just started bawling. She was like, I can't even explain. Like, my husband's just died. I'm driving at two o'clock in the morning because my daughter and her new baby are in hospital. I think the cops just like, just go home and get your car registered. You'll be okay. When did you start embarking on the whole animal nutrition line? Yeah, so I guess, as I said, the um, Pfizer takeover of the company was tough for me because I had an incredibly good relationship with a lot of clients, a lot of them in WA, SA, Vic, New South Wales, um, and that I'd worked with for quite a few years. And um, Pfizer took a very corporate approach to the business, I guess, and started jacking up prices. And I'd just signed some contracts with people for long term DNA programs that I'd signed them over to the program on and Pfizer pretty much screwed them all up and changed all the pricing and then tried to make me deliver the news. So it it was that desperation where I was like, I need to get out of here. Like I can't go around and tell all these people this. So I pretty much just started. So we'd then, we'd bought a little house in Seven Hill at this point and decided to move back to the Clare Valley or back for me. Um, And it's pretty hard to find an animal job in the mid-north. It was then. So the closest company I found was Leanitz at Roseworthy. So same, I guess because I've always been in sales, you know, they're happy to take a salesperson from DNA if you've got the right personality and you can make relationships with clients. But that was the start of my path into nutrition. You were there for five years? Uh, Ten years. Ten years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I had all of the kids through that time – you know, all of the stuff I just said with dad was all through that time. Like, they were a, a really good company to work for, really supportive. Um, but I think I just made the role my own at Lena. And why did you decide to go out on your own? Um, I guess, so within Lena, I started in sales. I did sort of six years in sales. Um, and then between, um, so we had Henry, and then between Henry and having our last child, I took on a national manager's job for Lena which was a pretty crazy move because I was interstate sort of twice a month and looking after a team of people nationally but I guess for me it was just a bit of a career challenge I guess prove I could do it or something but I basically feel like I just worked my ass off for them I was working two and a half to three days a week which was a joke so I guess I feel like I was being paid two and a half to three days a week and just working my ass off and I started doing a more consulting model, like I was selling nutritional products, but I was doing so much work for clients. A number of people kept saying to me, will you consult to us or why aren't you doing consulting? Because you're doing, basically doing it anyway. So I think it just made me think there was more out there. 
But yeah, I guess the turning point for me was I actually did a Persa leadership course, which I've never been into really women's in ag stuff or anything for myself as far as leadership or learning about myself. And I, um, Lena paid for me to do it and I did this course and it was unbelievable for me. In what so, way? So I wrote a letter on the first session and it was like, where are you going to be at the end of this year? They go through a lot of personal stuff about what makes you tick and why you're doing the things you do. Because I never, I'm just busy. I don't stop and think why I do things or why I make decisions. And so I think I just started to put a bit more thought into what I did enjoy, what made me happy. And But then you actually wrote what you were going to achieve. And so I'd been arming and ahhing about do I go on my own and look at people that were consulting and think that's what I want to do. But I didn't have the guts to do it. So I wrote all of this out and said this is where I'm going to get to by the end. And they almost made you accountable. So Jeanette Long is someone that runs that program. So I had a few sessions with her and I'd basically say, like, I can't leave Lena because they're going to put me through a nutrition course next year. And she's like, that's a bad excuse. Like, you can just pay for that yourself. It's nothing. Like, you can't not start your own business because of that excuse. Like, every excuse I had, she was like, that's crap. So I just did it. And how did it feel? Um, Really good. Yeah. So. And how was that first year out? So busy. Like, I'm only two and a quarter years in now. So... Yeah, I think basically I quit and then um, I had my personal phone number, a few people had it and people just started ringing me, like mostly clients that I'd already done work with through Lena and I put, I filled my book of clients pretty quickly with people I already knew and yeah, the work just kept rolling in. It was unbelievable. Because you're getting to the stage now where you have to say no. Yeah, I have to, yeah, which is tough. That's a great thing for you though. Yeah. A great position to, you've obviously built up such a good reputation, not even just in South Australia by the sounds of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess though, they're the things that you wish your dad was still here because I want to show, I want to say to him now, like, look at the career in animals. Like there's not enough of me, like there's not enough people that can do consulting in the sheep and beef space. So um, it's actually a major issue because if I say no, there's not a lot of people I can push work onto. And I guess you need that life experience too. To yeah. be a consultant, you have to have a, a fair amount of credibility yeah. behind you. Yeah. And you've got that. So if you're a grad... Yeah, you and it's just knowledge you gain over years of working with people. So it's it's not things you learn at uni or that you learn in textbooks. Like it's just practical experience you get with working with farmers and seeing different things. And What's been the biggest challenge for you since you started your own business? Um, I guess just balance because, as you've said, like I've got three kids. So... Um, Jeanette Long gave me the most amazing piece of advice first up and she must have foresaw that I was going to be flat out where I sort of thought my phone would never ring but she said put a number of clients you're going to take on and stick to it and I feel like I've done that really well so um, I've basically picked out what work I want to do and I've had to turn away the rest because I've still got kids at home and um, Joe's flat out with work and yeah, we've got a fair bit going on anyway. <laughs> because you also run a venue space as well, the Curly Goose. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's <laughs> whose dr- idea? Whose idea? I know. Was that? So we sort of fell into that. So we were living on a couple of acres on the main road at Seven Hill and renovated a cottage and um, fixed up all the grounds and tried to get an extension done and realised it was going to cost us a fortune. And then the old Stringy Bray Winery came up on twelve acres out the back of Seven Hill, like the most beautiful spot. So we bought it, sold the cottage, um, 
lived in there for 18 months, did nothing with the venue. It was quite run down, like I'd just not been hired out for quite a while or used. And people just kept saying, can we have a wedding? Then once you have one wedding, you have to have public liability. So it probably was on one of my maternity leaves or something when I was bored that I just relaunched. We called it the Curly Goose, did the website and just set it up as a dry hire business. And how old were the kids at this point? Um, oh, I can't actually even remember how long it's been running, maybe six years. So Tom would have been three and Henry one or something. So it probably was while I was on maternity leave with Henry because I oh, get bored. Not, not yeah, bu- yeah. <laughs> not busy enough. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's been good to us, but it's definitely suited to someone with a bit more time or not working that's got a bit more of a passion for events. But I mean, we've set it up as a dry hire, so it's and it's a lot of country people that get married there. So. I end up with a bit of a crossover between work and people getting married at our venue anyway. <laughs> you know, the one thing about you, Deb, is, you know, you are probably one of the busiest people I know and the fact that you have got stamina. Yeah. You don't seem to ever get tired and yeah. you just go, 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 go. How do you do it? What's yeah, I think secret? I do. I don't know. Everyone always thinks that about me, but I definitely crash out. And I'm, I think a lot of people think I sleep for five hours a night, but I need eight hours sleep. So... Um, I do do a lot of work at night because I guess at the moment I value, I try and have Mondays and Fridays off with Jock, you know, taking phone calls, doing a bit of office work when I can. But um, I guess I kind of protect that time with your last child. You know, he's at kindy next year, then school the year after. But, um, you know, when people ask how many days I work, I definitely do those two days at night to make up for the time I'm not out. But I definitely still crash out and go to bed. Yeah. You don't get eight hours sleep a night, surely. Not always, but <laughs> I try. Yeah, I do still definitely need sleep. And how do you balance life? As you said, you've got three kids, you've got this venue, you've got the full-time job. How do you and Joe yeah. make it work? Yeah, so this is a pretty tough month or two for us, like over spring, because Joe's absolutely flat out. But, yeah, I mean, we've got – Jock he's, jo- he's and, and let's just clarify, Joe's yeah. an agent. Yeah, so agent. Joe's a stock agent. So he's down the southeast for three days now. You know, childcare, mum's brilliant. So she has the kids a couple of days a week after school. So I guess I've got those three days a week where I have I can work just a full day, um, which helps because I do do a lot of field work. So you just can't be back at five o'clock or, you know, caught to four to pick up from the school bus. Um, we've also got a brilliant nanny that we have one day a week that we've had I don't know, probably six years or it's about when I took on the national job that I was like, I need some help at home. So she'll pick the other boys up from the bus and has Jock at home. So he's not in childcare the whole time. And yeah, she's been amazing too. So I don't know. And then I feel, yeah, I mean, I am still home those days. And if there's something on at school, you try and make it work really. Where do you see yourself in 10 years time? It's such a hard question. I don't know because I feel like this is probably what I wanted to be doing but I don't know how long you keep doing this either. But I I guess I don't see a next step. Like I feel like I just pick out the bits I enjoy. Um, We've bought a property um, up near Murraytown as well that we're just leasing out at the moment. So I guess Joe and I both would hope to be doing a bit more hands-on sheep livestock production or something ourselves in the future too. So I guess just because this is so busy, I don't see myself just being flat out for the next 10 years, but I don't really know how that's going to look. What does Joe think about your success? I think he finds it hard as far as the fact that he doesn't have a wife that can just drop off, pick up kids and cook (laughs) dinner. But 
Um, I think in another sense, he kind of realises what makes me tick as far as I've got to have something going on. So, I don't know. He doesn't particularly say, but just because I feel like at times our life's pretty overwhelming. (laughs) Because you've still got time to, you know, you've still got time for your friends, you've got still time for your family. And, you know, I think you think that social... Social engagements are, you know, a major part of your life because it's a healthy part of everyone's lives. So you both balance out there too, don't you? Yeah, but I think I thrive on chaos. So, like, I basically run on adrenaline. But I I think it's the way I was always made to live where Joey's probably not quite so much. So he'd probably prefer a bit more downtime where... I can have a busy week and still be like, who's around for a wine? Like, let's head to seat and have a gin. <laughs> so I think he doesn't understand that part of me. But, yeah, that that's sort of what makes me tick. Deb, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your story and hearing how far you've come, say, in the last you know, 20-odd years. And congratulations. You've done so well and you're kicking some major goals. Thanks very much, Annabelle. Good talking to you. Thank you, Deb, for sharing your story. If you enjoyed Deb's story please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. I'm Annabelle Homer. If you'd like to find out more about me, all my details are in my show notes. I'm a former ABC Rural Broadcaster. I'm a voice coach, run public speaking sessions and I produce audio memoirs and podcasts. Catch you next time for another episode of Voice It.